Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 2nd of December 2019 and this is episode 139. On this week's podcast, I talked to Sue Laffey about research that she and Ida Atkinson conducted into the community of Billsdale in North Yorkshire during the Great War. I spoke to Sue from her home in Kiddyminster. Sue, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us how you became interested in the Great War and also a bit about um, why you started to research Billsdale and its Great War soldiers? Thank you, Tom. Yeah, I, I started to become interested in the First World War back in 1979 because my school took me on an exchange to the northern part of France, which just happened to be to a town called Achaux en Amiennois, which is bang in the middle of the Somme battlefield. I could actually see one of the British war cemeteries from my bedroom window. And of course, I've never been anywhere like that, seen anything like that. Um, the family I was staying with took me to Val. they took me to Beaumont-Armel. So back in, back in even in 1979, as a 13-year-old, I was starting to become interested. When we got home, I talked to family about this and started to hear tales of, of my great-uncle Jack. We call him Uncle Jack, but he's my great-uncle. And, you know, found out a little bit more about him, found out that he, his mother had died back in the 1950s without knowing where her son had been commemorated, which just seemed such a shame. So I undertook some research back then, found out from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission where Uncle Jack was commemorated. A bit later on, around about 2000, I got interested in genealogy, spent some time down at the public record office, as it was then, looking at Uncle Jack's war diary and things like that. And then just by an absolute coincidence, I got put in touch with Ida Atkinson, who's very much my partner in crime on all of this. Ida lives in Billsdale, or very near Billsdale, and at the time she was secretary of the Billsdale study group. Billsdale, I should explain, is where Uncle Jack came from, where my family originally is from. Um, and Ida asked me to do a talk for the Billsdale study group about Uncle Jack, which I did in um, October 2005. That led in 2008 to my first book, which was called The Billsdale Bombardier, about Uncle Jack. And when we were researching that, we decided that it would be really nice to do something for all the men from Billsdale who fought in the war, not just my great uncle. And that's what led to my, my current project. Now, this might sound a really obvious question, but where is Billsdale and what sort of area of the country does it incorporate? Well, Billsdale's in North Yorkshire and it's roughly, it's a long, thin valley, about 10 or 12 miles, roughly between Stokesley and Helmsley in, in the middle of the North Yorkshire National Park. And what was it like in 1914 when you started, obviously, when many of the men um, you research went to war? Yeah, it was a very close-knit community. Um, in 1911 census, there was 700 residents, roughly 50-50 men and women. But many of these families were interrelated. Um, you have some key families like the Garbutts, the Todds, the Atkinsons and so on. Um, but all the, the very many of these kind of married into each other's families and so on. Most of the residents were subsistence farmers on very small farms and were nearly all tenants of the Earl of Feversham, whose um, family seat, his ancestral home, was in Helmsley. 
life very much revolved around the agricultural cycle, although a few men had gone off to, into other occupations such as mining and things like that. There were a, a kind of really good cohesive sense of community, however, lots of social activities linked to things like the Billsdale Silver Band, the cricket team. There's an annual agricultural show which continues to this day and lots of activities linked to the church and chapels in the area. Now, your research covers two broad narratives. One is about obviously the men who went to the Great War and the other is about the area and the home front. Taking the first um, area, um, the men who went, can you tell us some stories about who went from the Bilso area and what happened to them when they went over to France and beyond? Yeah, we ended up researching 82 men. 19 of those did die during the First World War or during its immediate aftermath. 56 survived and there were seven others. Often these were men who we know were involved in appeals against conscription that were unsuccessful, but we can't actually prove that they went to war. We have lots of evidence for all of these men. We have service records. We have other evidence of service, although clearly we know more about about some of the 82 than others. I think the best thing for, for me was being able to get in touch with some of the descendants of the men and see their photographs, see their diaries, see other documents that have survived over the last hundred years um, to, to talk about this, the men's service. The first enlistment we can definitively date is William Med Wetherill, who enlisted on the 18th of September 1914. And the men served in a wide range of units. As you'd expect, most of them served in Yorkshire infantry regiments, and there was a lot who joined up to artillery regiments. But we have men who joined the Royal Navy, the Royal Air Force, tank units, the cavalry. We actually have three men who joined the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers in December 1915. Um, and they all have consecutive service numbers, which, you know, to me is really interesting that they all chose that regiment or were put in that regiment or whatever. We have men who served in all the main theatres of war from the Western Front to Gallipoli, Italy, Salonika, India, East Africa, Egypt and Palestine. We have men who served in the same battalions as Walter Tull and the poet Edward Thomas. We have men who suffered shell shock, malaria, gas attacks, and one even, sadly, who took his own life in 1919. Basically, what I think we uncovered in Billsdale through researching these 82 men was a real microcosm of the First World War. I think the only things we didn't find were a VC winner and a prisoner of war. And we actually, we don't know we found everybody yet, so who knows, they may be out there. I'd just like to tell you about a couple of the men in particular. The first, obviously, is John William Garbutt. He was my great uncle. Um, Garbutt is my maiden name. And he's the man who got me hooked on the Great War. He joined up early in 1915. We suspect it might have been on the occasion of his 19th birthday, which was the 10th of January. But we can't prove that because his service record didn't survive. He joined the 96th Battalion of the Royal Field Artillery and later on um, moved to the 19th, sorry, the 94th Brigade, um, serving with the 21st Division. He trained in the area around Tring and Berkhamsted, and then on the 10th of September 1915, he left for France. He served at the Battle of Luz, the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Arras, the Battle of Passchendaele, and became a, a bombardier in the spring of 1917. Having survived all of that on the 21st of March 1918, he was bringing ammunition to a gun position 
during the start of the German Spring Offensive. The gun position was between Epehi and Saint-Emilie. Um, and during his one of his journeys back and forth to the ammo dump, some the roads were being heavily shelled and some heavily heavy caliber shells burst quite close to his wagons. Um, we know from the letter his commanding officer wrote home to his family that he was probably killed instantly by some of these heavy calibre shells and his body was never found. He's commemorated on the Pozier Memorial. But interestingly, in Saint-Emilie Valley Cemetery, which is only, let's say, a, within a couple of miles of the place where he was killed, there is a tombstone commemorating a bombardier of the Great War. And we've kind of adopted that as Uncle Jack's tombstone, although we know there's a one in 11 chance it's him, but we can't get further than that. Secondly, I'd like to tell you about Ted Atkinson. He's Ida's granddad. Um, he enlisted in the 9th of December 1915 and was mobilised in May 1916. He had a very different experience because he served with the 101st Company of the Royal Garrison Artillery, which was part of the 4th Ketter Division. He was posted to Menorah, which is just south of Karachi in modern-day Pakistan. Now, unfortunately, I've, I've searched everything I can find on the internet and in books, but I can't really find what, if any, active military service he had down there there, what battles he might have fought in. But clearly he would have had a very different war to Uncle Jack. We know he left the subcontinent on the 30th of October 1918 and he was bound for France, but clearly the armistice led to other plans. So he was posted to Aldershot on the Isle of Wight. What's really interesting is reading his letters home during the early part of 1919 when he was doing everything he possibly could to get demobilised, but to no avail. And eventually he had to wait till September 1919 before he was able to come home. He worked again as a miner which had been his pre-war occupation and later as a road worker. Mm. He raised a couple of sons, including Ida's father, and lived to be 76 before he died in 1970. So are there any really sad stories that emerge from your research? Yeah, I think the saddest one is about Sapper Joseph William Garbutt, not related directly to, to my Uncle Jack. Um, he was a railway worker before the war and he joined the joined up in June 1916. He was older at this point. He was already married um, and, and he joined up and he was responsible for railway work during the war as well as part of the Royal Engineers. He was based around the Somme although only from the spring of 1917. Um, and one of his unit in August 1917 died while jumping on a moving train and slipping under the wheels. Clearly, Joseph saw a lot, even though he wasn't full in the middle of some of the bigger battles that some of the other men I talked about faced. Um, after the war, he was demobilised around about February 1919. But by May 1919, he was a patient at Scotton Military Hospital in Cataract, in Cataract sorry, um, suffering from debility. He was there for nine, five weeks. But during the end of that time, he actually took his own life. Clearly, what he'd seen during the war was just too much for him as a civilian again. And we were able to find his coroner's report into his death. Um, and it makes really sad reading that he was basically found lying under some bushes near a stream. Uh, and there had been he cut his wrists with a razor. Um, and I just find that is so sad that he managed to go through several years of war, but couldn't cope with the peace. And, I, you know, that is probably the saddest story that I've come across. 
Did you come across a lot of um, stuff that families didn't know about uh, some of their relatives in the Great War? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think there were some families who knew that their men had fought and had memorabilia about that, but often didn't know where they'd fought or when they'd gone out or when they died. Some had never come across their service records before. And I think that's been really interesting to kind of marry up the official records with the personal records that some of these families still had. So, for example, one of our men was a peacock and his father kept a diary we know from that diary when it snowed in billsdale in april and it's just amazing some of the things in there but some of the stuff that he didn't know his father didn't know about his service we were able to uncover and that just makes it all the more rewarding doesn't it when you're able to match everything up for people that they didn't know and now we move on to the second part of, of your study, which is actually the experience of Billsdale during the war and the home front. Tell us how the, the area um, fared during the conflict. What the evidence we uncovered was probably that the war, because Billsdale is so isolated, it, the war probably came quite late to Billsdale. Just the thought that the first man we can definitely, definitively date the enlistment to wasn't until September 1914. And so many of the men carried on working on farms as late as they possibly could. But we do know that people were supportive of it. We've got a huge number of letters that have survived, both to the soldiers and also from the soldiers. Often these saying thank you for parcels than of socks and cake and things that, that people at home sent them to help their time become a little bit easier. We also know that Billsdale was supportive of the war from the fact that in June and July 1915, we're not going to believe this, 2,000 eggs were sent from Billsdale to the wounded, to hospitals caring for wounded soldiers. Obviously, not everybody was supportive, and we know that some men did try and avoid conscription. Um, there was a family called the Dale family, uh, and there were several sons in this family who all went before the tribunal. And the, the quote is this, and this is a quotation. This is the worst case of shirking service that has come under the consideration of this tribunal, wrote the official report. Um, most of the appeals were obviously unsuccessful. Um, I suppose the key thing we found out was that life really, we don't think, changed a lot for the people who stayed at home. For example, uh, in other parts of the country, women perhaps went to do occupations that they wouldn't have done before the war. But in the this farming community, women would always have worked on the farms. We think sometimes their specific tasks might have changed, but the fact that they were just doing what different work on the farm probably didn't cause quite such a big upheaval for them as it might have done in other far parts of the country. We know the hunt continued. The Billsdale hunt was popular before the war and after the war, but also during the war. We know that church activities such as Harvest Thanksgiving and the Sunday school anniversaries continued. We, some things would have stopped probably for the duration while some of the men were out fighting, but a lot of things did stay the same. We don't think that rationing had a big impact in Billsdale because clearly the, the farmers would have been subsistence farmers before the war and therefore would have continued being subsistence farmers during the war. So probably rationing didn't have a big impact. And the other thing we don't think had a big impact was flu. Um, we did a, an analysis of the deaths actually in the Dale throughout the 
whole war and afterwards. And there wasn't any sort of spike in deaths during 1918 and 1919. The only thing we do know is one of our men, Harry Nags, who he'd enlisted in December 1915 and had served in all of the major battles from the summer 1916 through to October 1918. He survived gunshot wounds. He survived gas attacks. But finally, he succumbed to the flu and he died on the 14th of November 1918, just three days after the armistice. So what was the impact of the conflict on Billsdale after the war? That's really interesting because obviously there was a reduction in the number of men around. Only, only in inverted commas, 19 died. But what we found was that so many more of the young men who did go away to war seemed to be attracted by greater opportunities outside of the farming community of Billsdale afterwards. Several of them were tempted by the industrial communities of Teesside, the Iron and Steelworks, for example, which are only a few miles north. So, for example, if I tell you that in 1939, 50 of our 56 survivors were still alive, but only 42% of them still lived in Billsdale. Um, other things happened as well. So there was definitely a change in agricultural practices. Mechanisation was slow to, to arrive in Billsdale. It was a poor, isolated community, so there wouldn't have been the funds around for huge amounts of mechanisation. But if you add the fact of the, the young men not coming back to the, the Dale, if you add the, the tenancies, therefore, passing to new families, perhaps families with a little more money buying into the Dale, um, if you add all of that together, there was definitely a reduction in the agricultural labour force. So 68% of our survivors had been involved in agriculture before 1914, but only 46% in 1939. And all of that resulted in probably the biggest change for Billsdale from the First World War to the present day. And that's a huge change in the makeup of the Billsdale residents. So, for example, if you look at the names of the people in the 1911 census and you look at the names of the people in the Dale now, it's, it's just changed beyond recognition. For example, there was 15 Garbutt families, including my own in the valley in 1911, but there's only two Garbutt families there nowadays in, in 2018 when we did the research. My family left during the period leading up to the Second World War just because they, the, the times were so hard they couldn't make ends meet due to various reasons. But that's been the biggest change, is the, ch the complete demographic change in, the, in Billsdale since the First World War. And how does Billsdale remember those who returned and those who fell? Well, there's three war memorials in the village. Two of them are at the main churches, the, the Church of England churches, St Hilda's in the north part of the Dale and St John's in the southern part of the Dale. We think those two war memorials were funded by the Earl of Feversham. Um, the third war memorial is right in the centre of Chopgate Village, which is the biggest sort of settlement in, the, in Billsdale. This was paid for by public subscription collected by Mr William Leckenby. Unfortunately, there isn't a role of honour as there are in many of these um, rural communities. So when we talk about 82 men, as I said earlier, we don't actually know we've got everybody yet, but we've done as well as we can. There's still an annual Remembrance Day service all of these years on, and I'm really proud of the fact that the, my book uh, commemorating all of these men was in Billsdale for the centenary of the armistice last year. And which leads me on to my final question. Where can people learn more about your research and also purchase your book for Christmas, which is coming up on us very quickly? 
It is, isn't it? Um, the best thing people can do if they're interested in knowing more is email me at billsdalefields at virginmedia.com. Sue, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.